to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verse 17, as we follow along with today's lesson. Now the whole issue, as far as God is concerned, is that We bear fruit. That's the purpose of bearing fruit. And the fig tree is symbolic through the scripture of the nation of Israel. And the cursing of the barren fig tree, that is not bearing fruit, is a symbolic action as much as anything else. Here is Israel not bearing fruit. And and they're to be cursed. They're to wither and die. And so it was actually a a picture of what was going to happen to the nation of Israel that was not bringing forth fruit. Here is the master coming to the tree desiring fruit. Hungry for fruit, he finds none. He doesn't find it in the nation of Israel. And and the rest of the chapter is, is going to deal with the subject of the desire for fruit. And how that the nation that doesn't bring forth fruit will be rejected and the vineyard will be given to a nation that will bring forth fruit. So the whole part of this chapter is tied together. The the fig tree that Jesus said, let no man. They had leaves. Interesting. It's like a lot of people. There's a lot of show, but there's no fruit. You know, the leaves, there's the appearance of life, but there's no fruit. Leaves only. And so, <laughs> presently, right while they were watching, the fig tree just withered. Branches lit over and things just died. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled. And they said, look how that thing just withered away, you know. They marveled at the instant withering of the tree as Jesus pronounced upon it that curse. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, if you have faith and doubt not, you shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if you say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. What an extremely broad promise that Jesus gives to whom? Who's he talking to? Is he talking to the multitudes? No. 
He's talking to his disciples. It's important to know that and to note that because this promise that Jesus is giving is not just a broad promise to anybody concerning prayer. It is to a specific group, his disciples. And what does it take to be a disciple? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So that the man who has denied himself isn't going to try to use this faith to put a Mercedes in his driveway. He's not going to use this for his own enrichment or he will be as bad as the chief priest who were using the concessions to sell the certified animals for their own enrichment. This promise is only to those who have renounced the self-life, who have denied self, have taken up the cross to follow Jesus. And all the power that God has given and made available to those who are fully aligned with him, not zealous for their own ambitions, but zealous for the kingdom of God. The prophet came to Asa the king in Second Chronicles chapter 15 or 16 there. And he said, don't you realize that the eyes of the Lord are going to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect towards him, those who have denied themselves and have taken up their cross to follow him. God's looking for those people that he might show himself strong on their behalf because their desires are for the work of God and the kingdom of God and not for self. And when he was coming to the temple, now it's interesting, came right back to the temple where he had cleansed the thing. When he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching. Now he is being Challenged by the religious authorities. And they had the right to do that because they were in charge of the temple, in charge of the worship. And they said to Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? They're challenging. Who authorized you to upset those tables and all yesterday? Who gave you this authority? By what authority do you do it? And who gave you the authority? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing. And if you tell me, I will tell you. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say unto us, Why didn't you then believe him? 
If we say it was of men, then the people will be angry with us because they all believe John was a prophet. Catch 22. So they answered Jesus and said, we can't tell you. So he said to them, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, he was doing it by the same authority that John was ministering, you see. If you won't accept John's authority, you're not going to accept the authority that I come with. They came to John. They asked John the same question. By what authority do you do this? You're baptizing all these people. By what authority? And, and now they're asking Jesus. He is doing it by the, if you tell me that John's authority was from God, then I'll tell you that my authority is from God. You see, they couldn't say that because John attested to Jesus. He testified concerning Jesus. He said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So if they acknowledge that John's authority was from God, then they would have to acknowledge that Jesus' authority is from God because John pointed people to Jesus. He said, this is the one of whom I spake to you that was coming after me, that's preferred before me. The latchet of whose shoes I'm unworthy to untie. This is the one. This is the Lamb of God. And so when Jesus asked them the question, he was willing to tell them the authority, but if they didn't recognize John's authority, they wouldn't recognize his either. And that's why he said, I won't tell you. You don't answer my question, and then I don't answer yours. But then he gave them two parables. And they were both directed against the chief priest and the rulers, the religious rulers of the people. What think ye? A certain man had two sons. And he came to the first and he said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And now we're introducing the vineyard. Again, the nation of Israel, God's vineyard. We're, let's just look at Isaiah 5 uh, and, and we see how uh, what Jesus is going to say in these two parables uh, re relates back to uh, this passage in Isaiah. Beginning with verse 1, Isaiah 5, 1. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof. And he planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the midst of it, and also he made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof. It shall be eaten up. I'll break down the wall thereof, and it will be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns, and I will... Also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it, 
for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, there was oppression. He looked for righteousness, but behold, there was a cry of the oppressed. So very plainly, the vineyard is the house of Israel. And so Jesus, picking up now from this analogy of Isaiah, something that they would immediately click on. Certain man had two sons. He said, go work in the vineyard. He answered and said, I will. But after, uh, and, uh, well, he answered and said, I will not. First one. But afterward, he repented and went. Now, this Greek word repented here is, is not the one that means to have a change. This particular word means to, he was really sorrowful. He, he thought it over. That, that's not right. He, he, he was sorry. And he went out and uh, worked in the vineyard. He came to his second son and said likewise. And he answered and said, I, sir. The word go is inserted, you notice. I, sir. In other words, you bet. Yes, sir, right now. But he didn't go. Now, which of the two of them did the will of the Father? Actually, did, which of the two did the will of the Father? And they said unto him, the first. Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you, going back to John now, uh, uh, what was his ministry? Was it from heaven uh, or from man? John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not. They wouldn't answer, but Jesus is saying, hey, you didn't believe him. If, if you said it was of heaven, then you did believe him, but you can't answer. You know you can't. And so you believed him not, but the publicans and the harlots believed him. And you, when you saw it, did not repent afterward that you might believe him. So here's John's ministry. And those who had said, no way, I won't follow God. They repented at the preaching of John. They were baptized and they began to follow the Lord. Here were the religious leaders that said, they were saying, yo, you know, we're submitted to God. But they're not. They, they are the second brother who said, yes, sir, but didn't do anything. And so uh, he, he goes back to John's ministry and there, the publicans, the sinners, the, the harlots came out and their lives were transformed and changed. And they were the ones who truly did the will of God. One making a show of it, the other actually doing it. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. A lot of people assent to the word of God. It isn't just an assenting to the word of God. It is doing the word of God that is important. Which one did the will of the Father? And the answer, of course, is those who, those who actually repented were sorrowful, and then they went out and did work in the vineyard. Now, 
He said, hear another parable. Got you on that one. Give you another one. <laughs> there was a certain householder, landowner, which planted a vineyard. Oh, yes. Now we're back to Isaiah 5, full force. He hedged it round about, put the fence around it. He dug the wine press in it. He built a tower, all in Isaiah 5. But now he let it out to the husbandman that he might receive the fruits of it. He put these religious leaders, the priesthood of Aaron and all, over it in order that they might cultivate it and develop it, in order that they might bring forth fruit unto him as the owner, the householder. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandman that he might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And so again he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Let's kill him, and then we will seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and they cast him out of the vineyard, and they slew him. The application of the parable is quite obvious. The vineyard, again, is the nation of Israel. The husbandmen are those religious leaders that the Lord put over the people to cultivate the vineyard, to watch over it, to bring fruit. And those that God sent were the prophets who were persecuted, who were imprisoned, who were killed, stoned. When Stephen was facing the religious council there in the book of Acts, he said, which of the prophets of God hath not your fathers persecuted? They rejected the prophets of God. Over and over, God sent his prophets, but they persecuted, rejected, killed, stoned. Until finally, God sent his son. I'll send my son. Now, Jesus was a threat to the religious leaders. They had said among themselves, you know, don't you know we've got to get rid of this guy or we're going to lose our place, we're going to lose our position, we're going to lose our money. We've got a lot invested here. We're going to lose it all if this fellow prevails. Jesus was a threat to the religious leadership of that day. So they said, we've got to kill him and we'll take the inheritance. It'll be ours then. We can continue on in this lavish lifestyle to which we've become accustomed as we're ripping off the people. But Jesus, having given them this parable, then he asked them the question, when the Lord thereof, or therefore of the vineyard cometh, what do you suppose he'll do to those husbandmen that killed his son? They killed his other servants that he had sent to gather the fruit. And they said unto him, 
he will miserably destroy those wicked men. And he will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Oh, how out of their own mouths they condemn themselves. Jesus let them do it right out of their own mouths. They pronounce their own judgment. You know, it's, it's lucky that you don't judge yourself. You'd be in big trouble. That is, if you judged yourself in the same, you know, well, look at David. That man shall surely be put to death. David, you're the man. You know, it, it's, it's, if someone else is doing my sin, then is where I judge it. I don't judge it with me. I, I have a good excuse. I can rationalize, you know. Uh, there was a reason why I did. There was pressure and, and all this kind of stuff. But if you do it, oh, oh that's terrible. Kill him, you know. That's, that's awful, you know. Get rid of them. David said, kill him. He said, hey, you're it, though, man. And here they're saying, you know, he'll get rid of those wicked servants. He'll utterly, miserably destroy those wicked servants. Hey, man, you're it. You are the wicked servants. And so Jesus then said, hey, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. You are the builders. You have rejected the stone. Throughout the Old Testament, the rock and the stone are used as symbols of God. He is our rock. He is our fortress. He has lifted me out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And, and all the way through, you find the rock used as a symbol for God. And the stone, a symbol for Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Remember, Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. The rock solid foundation. When Moses was coming through the wilderness with the children of Israel and they came and said, we're thirsty, we don't have any water, it's arid and, 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 and we're going to die of thirst if we don't get water quickly. Moses went to the Lord and said, Lord, what shall I do? And the Lord said, take your rod and smite the rock that water might come forth. And he smote the rock, and the water gushed out, and the people drank, and they survived. And you remember Paul said that rock was Christ. Later on, you remember, towards the end of the wilderness journey, again they came to Moses, and they said, we're thirsty, we're going to die of thirst, you know. Why did we ever fall of you? You didn't bring us into the land anyhow. And Moses was so angry with them. He went into God and said, God, they're going to kill me. I, I, I can't take it anymore. I've had 40 years of nothing but gripe. And I'm through. I quit. God said, Moses, they're thirsty. Go out and speak to the rock that water might come forth. 
And Moses went out and he said, you rebels, how long do I have to put up with you? Must I smite this rock again? And he smote the rock. And the water gushed out and the people survived. But God said, Moses, come here, son. What did I tell you to do? Speak to the rock. Moses, why did you smite it? Mad. Moses, I got some bad news for you. <laughs> you can't lead the people into the problem. Come on, Lord, that's not fair. Forty years I've been putting up. You mean what do you mean? The Lord said, Don't talk to me anymore about it, Moses. It's a done issue. Because you failed to represent me. You see, you destroyed Moses, the whole picture. The rock is Jesus. He was smitten once. And by his being smitten, water of life flows freely to all who are thirsty and will come and drink. But you don't have to smite the rock again. All you have to do is speak to the rock and the water flows freely. And so Moses just sort of upset the whole beautiful analogy that God was setting up and he, and he blew the whole thing in. So it was so serious. The God said, say, Moses, sorry. You can't lead them into the land of promise. The law can never bring you into the full, rich, promised land of God. The law can lead you to it. Schoolmaster to bring you to Christ, but it takes Christ to bring you in to the land. And so Joshua, Jesus, Joshua. I mean, look how God set it up so perfectly. Hebrew name for the Greek name Jesus. The law couldn't bring him in, but Jesus does. And he brings us into the glorious, rich, full life of the Spirit, something the law can't do. So Jesus said, haven't you ever read in the Scriptures? <laughs> the stone which was rejected by the builders, the same has become the chief stone of the corner. This is the work of the Lord. It's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you. No longer the vineyard. The kingdom of God is going to be taken from you. And it shall be given to a nation that will bring forth the fruits thereof. You see, God's greatest desire is that you bring forth fruit. Now turn to John chapter 15. As Jesus is talking to his disciples, they are to be the new husbandman. I am the true vine, my father is the husbandman. And every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. The nation of Israel, the fig tree withered and died. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it or washes it, that it might bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can you, except you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. And he that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. And if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, 
Men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and so forth. So uh, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so shall you be my disciples. That's what God wants, fruit. He doesn't want fruitless life. He wants, doesn't want just pretty leaves. He wants fruit. He wants fruit from your life. And what is the fruit that God is seeking? Now, the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's manifested in joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and temperance and meekness. That's what God is looking for. The fruit of his Spirit, love. When the Lord comes into his garden, comes to the vineyard, he wants fruit. He wants to enjoy the fruit. He wants to enjoy the, the love, the praise, the adoration that is offered to him. The sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips unto God. And so he comes into his church, his vineyard, desiring and looking for fruit. And may he find always that fruit that he desires as he comes and joins in our fellowship. As he is here, may our hearts just be lifted in praise and worship and adoration of our Lord. And let love just flow so that he is pleased. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. And may he find us just bearing an abundance of fruit, his love constantly flowing in and through our lives and out unto others. And then Jesus went on to say, And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Now, Jesus the stone said of not of the builders, If you just cast yourself on Jesus, you'll be broken the kind of breaking that heals. But if you resist him, if he falls on you, you'll be ground to powder. I mean, you're, you're dust. You'll be dusted, man. You're wiped out if he falls on you. But falling on him, that breaking, how beautiful it is. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables... The light went on. They said, oh, hey, you know. They perceived that he was speaking of them. I mean, it, it hit. Ooh, got me, you know. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because the people took him as a prophet. They accepted him as a prophet. So they, they were in a dilemma. They wanted to arrest him but they knew they couldn't do it publicly because the people, the general public, were excited and they were seeing the healings and they were looking at him as a prophet. And so they have a real dilemma. And of course, that's where Judas comes in, uh, who, of course, 
tells them, I'll show you where he is in a private place where you can arrest him without the public. And, you know, before the people even wake up and realize what's going on, you can get him on the cross. It'll be too late. So that's, that's why the, the midnight trial and the early morning with Pilate and by 9 o'clock in the morning, before people really realized what was going on, Jesus was hanging on a Roman cross. So... Here they are. They're in a dilemma as to what to do. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid to do it. Now, (laughs) this is the beginning of a face-off between Jesus and the religious rulers. It will end in chapter 23 with one of the most scathing denunciations upon any group of people ever uttered at any time in history, as Jesus just takes them to task. So he'll be dealing now in the next couple of chapters with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and these religious leaders, and uh, they'll be challenging him with questions. He'll be challenging them with questions, and then he will write them off in chapter 23. Let's turn now in our Bibles to the 22nd chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. If I were to title the chapters in the New Testament, I think I would put a title on chapter 22 of The Gathering Storm. The Momentum is building. The die has been cast. The religious leaders have determined that Jesus must die. He is a threat to their job security. And they have determined that the only solution is to get rid of him. And so... In chapter 22, we see the growing controversy, which will more or less culminate in his scathing denunciation of them in chapter 23. And from that point on, the plot to put him to death, the determination has been made and now just the carrying out of the plot until we find him hanging on the cross in chapter 27. So this is the growing storm clouds. They're building up in chapter 22. Now, it actually began in the 21st chapter as Jesus was challenged and questioned by them concerning his authorization. Who authorized him to cleanse the temple, to chase away the people who were making merchandise of the things of God, those who were profiting off of the money exchange tables. And having driven them out, they're asking now, who authorized you to do this? And Jesus answers them with parables. 
And they recognize that the parables are designed to expose them. The parables are designed against them. And in chapter 23, he continues the parables. We read, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables. Now, according to Mark's gospel, this happened on the next day, probably on Tuesday. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. Now, in this parable, the king, of course, is God, and the son is Jesus Christ, planned a wedding. And he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed. All things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the rest of them took his servants and entreated them spitefully and killed them. Now, the invited guest was the Jewish nation. They were the ones to whom the promises were given, the promise of the Messiah. But they rejected. He, in the previous parable, talked about the stone which the builders rejected, who had become the chief cornerstone. And they rejected the invitation to the marriage. So when the king heard thereof, he was angry. He sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Another prophecy of Jesus of the coming destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman armies under Vespasian, the emperor and Titus, who was the field general, and how the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and burned. Prophecy of it. Then he said to his servants, the disciples, The wedding is ready, but those who were bidden are not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid them to the marriage. Take the gospel out to the Gentiles, to whoever will listen. Invite them to come. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Now when the king came in to see the guest, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how is it that you came in not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness, 
There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So the parable, the, uh, the it, interpretation of it is quite obvious. The Jews having rejected Jesus as their Messiah, he is to be presented to the world. The world is invited to come to be a part of this glorious wedding. And they went out and gathered in many. The king came in to greet the guest, and he saw one that did not have on a wedding garment. There is only one way by which we can enter into the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is likened to a king who's prepared a wedding for his son. There's only one way we can enter in, and that is through the merits of Jesus Christ. We read in the book of Revelation, and the bride made herself ready, and she was adorned in fine linen, pure and clean. And the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. But the righteousness of the saints is a righteousness that God imputes to us through our faith in Jesus Christ. So in this parable, it's a warning to those who would seek to enter the kingdom of God apart from Jesus Christ. Those who would dress themselves in the robes of their own works, their own righteousness. We are warned in the scriptures of how unacceptable our righteous deeds are in the sight of God. Isaiah tells us that they are as filthy rags in his sight. Paul the Apostle talking about the righteousness that he once had according to the law. He said he was blameless. But those things which were gained to him, that is his obedience and adherence to the Mosaic law, he counted loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He said, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, but count it but refuse, that I may know him and be found in him, not being clothed with my own righteousness, but the righteousness which is of Christ through faith. So there are many who have come to the wedding feast. Many are called, but few are chosen. Those that are chosen are those that are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, those that are trusting in him and relying upon him. It seems rather sad that a person would actually respond to the invitation to come but still not be accepted because he came on the wrong basis. I think that many times we make a great mistake in appealing to people to come to Jesus Christ for all of the perks and the benefits that they might enjoy. Your life all disturbed, you're upset, you don't know what to do? Well, Jesus can bring you peace. And, and they, they come for the benefits rather than 
recognizing that I am hopeless and helpless, a sinner. And I need help and that repentance from my sin. There are many who have never really repented of their sin. They continue in their deeds of unrighteousness, though they have added a dimension to their life of Sunday attendance in church. But it hasn't really had any effect in the transforming of their lives. They don't have the wedding garments. They are not clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And thus when the time comes and judgment is made, they will not enter into the kingdom but will be cast into what Jesus described as outer darkness. They say that the universe has a limit. Hard to think of a limit to space. But they say that our universe does stretch out some 15 billion light years. What lies out beyond that is nothing. It seems, according to many theories, that our universe is expanding into that nothingness, that we are living in an expanding universe. But according to the Big Bang Theory, the energy expended by the bang in thrusting out the galaxies to these vast distances, uh, soon the entropy will take its toll and the whole thing will begin to collapse again into this uh, black hole. And when it does, then the tremendous pressures will create another uh, big bang. And who knows whether or not life will develop in that new big bang that takes place. It's a miracle that it actually <laughs> happened here, you know. It's impossible, but here we are. It is interesting that in a scientific symposium in 1975 in Europe, whereby some of the leading scientists of the world gathered to determine in this symposium whether or not there was uh, an attempt at intellectual um, communication from people in space uh, to uh, the universe to find out if there are other intelligent beings. The possibility of, of intelligent beings somewhere out there in the universe who have developed to the same degree of intelligence that man has, who is trying to communicate. And so uh, we have set up these vast... Uh, listening devices around the world to listen for signals coming from space, radio-type signals that would come in some kind of a sequence and order that would, uh, could be interpreted intelligently, thus proving that there are intelligent beings out there in space. And we, in turn, are sending out cryptic-coded signals into space, spending hundreds of millions of dollars find, trying to find out whether or not we're alone. Uh, your tax money going for good purposes. 
And so they had the symposium. And uh, MIT published a book which was the printed form of the symposium, the various lectures and theories and all that were presented. And uh, the very first presentation was by a group of American scientists who entered into a computer all of the factors that were necessary for the creating of the first cell by uh, these accidental circumstances, by matter acting on matter. And uh, as they fed them in to get the compound probability of the first cell ever being formed, the chances of the first cell ever being formed were so vast that this first symposium suggested that it's impossible that there could be any other life form any place else in the universe. The chances of it being developed are too vast, too remote. It's an utter impossibility that there could be other life forms in the universe. I thought that was quite interesting. Carl Sagan actually edited this uh, book called Extraterrestrial uh, Communication. Why didn't they carry that one step further? Having concluded that it's impossible that a cell could form from uh, just a spontaneous kind of regeneration. Why can't you carry that one step further and say it's impossible that you exist? It's impossible that life could exist anywhere else in the universe. Then how do you explain, explain life existing here? You've got to say, well, it was created, you see. But they can't take that step. You know, that's not scientific. It's just scientific to say it's impossible that it can happen anywhere in the universe other than here. Well, then how did it happen here? Except it be God created. So how did we get there? I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Darkness. Outer darkness. The galaxies in our universe are constantly emitting light. And of course, now there's an interesting, you know, scientific kind of uh, research on whether or not the speed of light is slowing down. With the slowdown of entropy and all, is the speed of light slowing down? And there are many physicists today who concur that it is. And then they talk about the curve of light. And uh, we know that light travels that at the present time, at 186,000 uh, miles per second. But if it's slowing down, it might be 185,000, another 5 million years or so. So, uh, but uh, it's, it's interesting that it is conceivable that you could go so far out into emptiness beyond the furthest galaxy that you could actually get to a point where no light from our universe would even reach that far.
We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Matthew in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on outer darkness. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Matthew 21 through 22 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we thank you for your word, the certainty of your word. Lord, even as we've studied these passages tonight, we see so many prophecies that were fulfilled. The sure word of prophecy. Lord, we thank you for the fact that we have become your vineyard. Help us to realize the awesome responsibility that you have placed upon us as the husbandmen, the overseers, And Lord, may we so cultivate and develop your vineyard that as you come to receive the fruit, you'll be welcome, Lord, to enjoy the fruit of your spirit, the love of your people, the worship, the praise. And Lord, may it always be, may it always be, that our hearts will be filled and our sanctuary will be filled with praises unto you, knowing, Lord, that you inhabit the praises of your people, your people Israel. The Lord, having removed the vineyard from them and making us your vineyard, we know you inhabit our praises also. So may our hearts be continually filled with praises unto thee. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. The Word for Today is pleased to present a flash drive of audio Bible studies by Kay Smith, titled, A Collection of Cherished messages. Just listen to what others are saying. Kay Smith changed my life. Her teachings encouraged me to want more of Jesus. And through her counsel and mentoring, I fell in love with him in a deeper way. When I first heard Kay, I was driving in my car. I was so moved that it brought me to tears because I needed to repent. That moment impacted my life to be a better mom 
who I am today. Renew your strength, please. I beg, I beseech, I entreat, and if there's any other word, I do that too. Get in His Word. Make it more than your necessary food every day. Kay Smith has a special place in her heart to teach and encourage women to live for Jesus. To order this flash drive with over 90 audio messages by Kay Smith, visit thewordfortoday.org or call 800-272-9673.